Welcome to the Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with. I am your host, Chad Blake, and today we are concluding our review of C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. The premise of the book is in the first place, making an important distinction between like and love in English, which we discussed in the first episode. And then the rest of the book addresses four distinct forms of love, which Lewis gets from the Greek language. In today's episode, we are discussing charity, the final chapter of the book. When I first read this book several years ago, this was not the most difficult chapter for me, but it was the most convicting. Charity as he presents it is not something that I had considered very deeply, and while I found the first two chapters and the chapter on affection very interesting and illuminating, the chapter on friendship the most approachable, the chapter on eros the most strange and unrelatable, the chapter on charity I found the most convicting, and it was the chapter that caused the most introspection. The chapter on friendship did cause some introspection because at that time, I had a fairly large circle of active companions and friends, and a lot of those friendships were going through some interesting changes. This final chapter was probably the one that caused me to realize I had some work to do on an obvious level as a Christian, and on a less obvious level simply as a person who likes to be helpful to the people around him. I think it is possible to get pretty far into this chapter and not be certain what Lewis means by charity. So I am going to define that real quick before we begin our review of the text. What do you think of when you think of the word charity? What do you picture? Lewis considers charity to be a love that is most like love himself, meaning Christ. Put simply, it is love that is freely given to the undeserved, or love that is given to what would be considered unlovable. We will come back to this, but I thought the discussion would make more sense if we got that out of the way. He opens the chapter with an amusing anecdote. I will quote from the text, William Morris wrote a poem called Love is Enough, and someone is said to have reviewed it briefly in the words, it isn't, end quote. He uses this as a place to explain his first point in the chapter, that the natural loves by themselves are not sufficient. He explains that this is not a criticism of the natural loves, and draws on the example of a garden to make his point. Just as a garden needs constant pruning, weeding, etc., the natural loves require deliberate and spiritual help if the feeling is to be kept sweet. This leads to a discussion which he says he had put off until this final chapter. That discussion is about how our natural loves can be rivals to the love of God. He says there were two reasons he left this for this place in the text. This is interesting because he relates it to something I was critical of in the chapter on Eros. The first point is he says you, that you have to be careful about counseling someone to focus on spiritual matters when they have not yet gotten the basics of earthly matters under their belt. He phrases it differently but I feel that is an adequate summary. The second reason he puts the subject off is, the loves cannot do what we need them to do without God. Relying on God, he says the loves will have the freedom to fully be themselves. Without God, they will either die or become despotic. He says that in any previous period, except for the 19th century, this subject would have loomed large throughout the text. During the Victorian period, he says older theologians were always saying very loudly that, each, that in each wife, mother, child, and friend, there was a possible rival to God. 
From this point, something interesting happens. He discusses rejecting the method of a writer whom he was fond of, who he says, quote, to whom my own glad debts are incalculable, end quote. The author is St. Augustine, and the advice is that giving one's heart to anyone but God will only lead to heartbreak one way or another. He admits that he feels like this is good advice, as he himself, according to him, was a risk-averse person. Quoting from the text, he says, Of all arguments against love, none make so strong an appeal to my nature as careful this might lead you to suffering. End quote. I find the point he makes next very interesting. He argues that reserving all your love for God on the basis that it is the safest way is in no way Christian. He asks if the reader would choose a wife or friend, or for that matter, a dog in this spirit. He says that one must be outside the world of love altogether before they could make such a calculation. He suggests this passage by St. Augustine is what he calls, and I quote, a hangover from the high-minded pagan philosophies in which he grew up, end quote. He felt this risk-averse attitude towards love has more in common with Stoic apathy or Neoplatonic mysticism than with Christian charity. He goes on to say that there is no safety in this passage from St. Augustine either way. Experiencing love is a vulnerability, and to experience love is at the very least an opportunity to have your heart wrung and possibly broken. Even affection for an animal will lead to this, and personally, I think anyone who has ever had a pet, and I mean a real pet, as in the sense of a companion, not a neglected animal that you leave outside and only interact with to feed, has felt this pain. Or at the very least, knows that pain is in their future. On the other hand, if one takes the safe route and locks their heart away and protects themselves against any experience of love, what will be left of our heart will not be worth having. The only place, Lewis asserts, to be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. He follows this with a comment, I believe that the most flawless and inordinate loves are less contrary to God's will than a self-invited and self-protective lovelessness, end quote. He explains that all natural loves can be inordinate, which brings us to our word for the day, because I needed to look that up. Inordinate is defined as exceeding reasonable limits. In the text, Lewis explains that inordinate does not mean insufficiently cautious, neither does it mean too big. Inordinate, he insists, is not a quantitative term. Quoting from the text, he says, It is probably impossible to love any human being simply too much. We may love him too much in proportion to our love for God, but it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for the man, that constitutes the inordinate inordinacy. At this point, he feels the need to make a clarification so that his text does not trouble anyone who, as he says, is alarmed because they cannot feel towards God so warm a sensible emotion as they feel for the earth, earthly beloved. He seems to believe that this is a reasonable difficulty, and the passage that follows is difficult. He uses an example from the Old Testament to make his point that our love for God should supersede all others, and when it does, it may feel to those in our lives who do not understand this Christian principle like hatred. The example he uses is of the relationship of Jacob and Esau from Malachi, book 1, verses 2-3. through three. He points out that while the text says, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau, 
it does not seem to be hate in the way we normally process the word. Isu, Lewis points out, seems to have had a prosperous and possibly even a blessed life. He also asserts there is no reason to suspect that Isu was a lost soul. Jacob, on the other hand, had a difficult life wrought with disappointments and bereavements. He concludes that the difference was Jacob was selected for a high and painful vocation. Isu was rejected for this. After discussing this for a bit, Lewis uses a quote from a poem to wrap up what he is saying. What he is getting at, ultimately, seems to be that our love for God allows our natural loves to be what they are meant to be. When we try to make our natural loves the main thing, they become despotic. He cautions against this throughout the text, not just in this chapter. I have no idea what poem this quote is from, but he says it is a statement from a cavalier to his mistress who is about to leave for war meaning the cavalier is about to go to war, not the mistress. The cavalier says, I could not love thee, dear, so much. Love I not honor more. For me, that quote makes a lot of sense. But he goes on to explain how it will not make sense to anyone who does not recognize the values of the cavalier in question. Apparently, in the poem he is quoting from, the woman in question shares the same values as, as the cavalier, and thus she understands his statement. Lewis uses this to explain that, among Christians, this priority of loving God first should be evident, and its, and its absence should prevent a serious friendship or a marriage from forming. It should not take, he asserts, a significant event to bring this to light. It should come up in day-to-day encounters that make this clear to all parties involved. At this point in the text, Lewis explains he is about to make what he says is, quote, the last steep ascent this book must try to make, end quote. That ascent, he says, is to, and I'm quoting again, try to relate the human activities called loves to that love which is God a little more precisely than we have yet done, end quote. He explains, he will use analogy as his tool of choice, admitting that there are limitations for this in view of the subject. An interesting quote from the text, We cannot see light, though by light we can see things. Statements about God are extrapolations from the knowledge of other things which the divine illumination enable us to know, end quote. He closes this brief section, setting up what he is about to discuss by saying, If anything in it is useful to you, use it. If anything is not, never give it a second thought, end quote. He lays out this argument by returning to his idea of gift love, stating that, In God there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. He emphasizes that the doctrine that God was under no necessity to create is essential to this argument. Otherwise, what might happen is the concept of what he calls a managerial God, whose function is to run the universe, might be the result. As I am actually working on this podcast on Easter weekend, I feel that it is fitting to quote the next part of the text. A lot of people, even Christians, who feel like they know all there is to know about Jesus, do not process the suffering he went through during the crucifixion. Lewis points out that God was aware this would take place before he created the universe. Quoting from the text, The buzzing cloud of flies around about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up, end quote. 
If you've never considered this, you might consider watching the 2004 film, The Passion of the Christ. Be advised, it's not cheerful. Hopeful, perhaps, if you're a Christian, but it's direct. Following is a long discussion of gift love and need love, and what they mean from a spiritual sense. He relates this back to what he calls charity in an interesting way. Charity, he explains, while being the love we need is not the love we want. We desire to be loved for our cleverness, beauty, generosity, fairness, usefulness, and so on. He says, the first hint anyone is offering us, the highest love of all is a terrible shock. He also says that this is well recognized because, quote, spiteful people will pretend to be loving us with charity precisely because they know that it will wound us, end quote. The rest of the chapter is spent in a discussion about the contrast between earthly love and what we might expect in heaven. This leads, understandably, to more questions than answers. He returns to the idea that if our natural loves are to survive in any way, it can only be because our love for God is our priority, thus allowing our natural loves to be more fully what they are intended to be. One thing he admonishes strongly against is the idea that people should turn to Christianity exclusively to be re- reunited with deceased friends and family in heaven. His view is that if there is any hope of reuniting with the deceased, it lies in having our loves in a natural order, meaning our love for God must be a priority. So we're coming to the end of my review for this chapter. I am not convinced I have done justice to this chapter in this review. I found it to be a difficult chapter. There were a couple of sections that I left alone, feeling they were out of my depth. I apologize for that, and I hope you were exposed to some new ideas. If you found this series interesting, I would encourage you to get a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, for yourself and give it a read. It's worth the time, it's thought-provoking, and at the very least, I think getting the idea, making the distinction between like and love is very important. And I think getting the idea across that there are different types of love also makes some things in day-to-day life make more sense. So thank you for listening. Go read a book.